The world around us is changing faster than ever before. From automation, artificial intelligence, big data, geolocation, to every aspect of how we work and live. This includes data. Welcome to Data Gurus Podcast. Our mission is to bring you a real-life perspective on what's happening in the industry and how successful companies and individuals in this niche navigate through the sea of change. Encouraging you to be bold, be brave, and be fearless. Let's navigate the data ecosystem together. Welcome to the Data Gurus Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Mike Bloxham, who is the Senior Vice President of the Global Media and Entertainment Division at Magid. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Seema. Thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining. You've been working on some really exciting stuff at Magid. Can you just share a little bit more about what your primary focus is there? Sure. It's a very wide focus in that I'm involved in pretty much all aspects of what Magid offers its clients, but very much, in my case, in the broad media and entertainment sort of landscape. And that runs the gamut from everything from sort of pilot testing and uh, talent coaching for on-air talent, all the way through to the other end of the spectrum where companies are trying to assess their position in the landscape to inform strategic decision-making and bringing new products to market. So where we get involved in concept and viability testing, market sizing, price modeling, uh, and so forth. So the focus itself is very, very broad. And I'm involved in developing our approaches to how we service our clients, the kinds of methodologies and products we wrap around delivering those services, as well as generating business and, and building relationships with clients and being involved in delivery of many of our projects as well. That sounds like a lot of fun and very intellectually stimulating. (laughs) It's certainly fun. It's a big sandbox, if you like. And of course, the media landscape is so diverse, increasingly diverse and increasingly challenging. But yeah, you're right. Intellectually, very, very stimulating indeed. There's a lot of good work to be done with a lot of very smart people in this business. Yes. And you and I have spoken. I know you have some strong opinions about the overall state of media purchasing. Share a little bit of your perspective in terms of what you think is happening today. Well, yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, obviously, there is a large scale and very correct move towards making far better use of data as we've gained access to more data, more granular data. And as we've gained as a result of technology, we've gained a better ability to integrate different data sets, which weren't originally put together or conceived with a view to integrating with others. However, I mean, I, and I know I'm not alone in this by any means, I do feel that to some extent the pendulum has swung towards the opportunity that data represents a little too fast, a little too far and somewhat at the expense of the, what for want of a better phrase is referred to as the, the insights side of the spectrum. And while data is enormously valuable, unless you're able to pull together what you learn from the data sets that are available to you with the deeper insights that tend to address the human side of why people behave the way they do, why they engage or why they don't engage with the different offerings available to them, then you're not getting the fullest picture. And I think some people are led to believe that data is like the magic bullet and it can provide them with a straight and simple answer. It's very tempting to believe that that's the case. But 
often you don't find out that it doesn't give you the full picture until you've invested a lot of money on the back of that and you've only learned too late that you didn't have the best informed picture. So can you give me an example of where you feel that, you know, the data is being used, but not necessarily optimized in terms of making the decision as it relates to, you know, media purchasing? Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) this is where I might be regarded as a heretic by some, but there's much talk and rightly so about audience-based buying. We're targeting audiences, let's be honest, it's always been audience-based to one degree or another. We've simply become much, much more sophisticated about what that means and how we do it. You know, well beyond demos, though demos are still used, even though people recognize they are a blunt object, but they do get used probably more than they should be. But nonetheless, people are targeting very much on the basis of trying to maximize the number of people they reach within the total audience they reach who are directly relevant to their goals. So they're either consumers of the product or light consumers and they want to upgrade them and get them by one more time or their prospects and so forth. The risk is that you're not taking into account the mind state, the context that you're reaching those people in. To put it bluntly, if all you say is, look, I need to reach women 25 to 44 who are mums and who buy product X, and you don't really care which shows are delivering them, then you are denying that certain types of shows, certain networks deliver those audiences in a different mindset. And mindset is fundamental to receptivity receptivity of the message and likelihood to act. Let's face it, we tune into different shows because we're either seeking to reinforce a mood we're in or we're looking to change our mood. We say, I feel like watching The Walking Dead or I feel like watching This Is Us. Those are shows that deliver something very different at an emotional level to the viewer and they provide a different context to the advertiser as a result. But my fear is that when you take a purely audience-based approach or a purely programmatic-based approach like that, you risk commoditizing the very thing that differentiates the context in which you are reaching the audience. You risk commoditizing the programming, you know? And I think that poorly serves the advertiser at the end of the day. And if it poorly serves the advertiser by lessening the impact of their communications, it will ultimately poorly serve the media owner as well. When you say it like that, when you actually bring examples like This Is Us versus The Walking Dead, I mean, it makes perfect sense. You know, when I view This Is Us, I know I need a box of Kleenex versus I just saw the stat, I think two days ago where Netflix said a billion minutes of The Office was streamed last year. And that evokes a very different feeling. So, but I guess it seems like it would be difficult to execute to really understand the context of how viewers feel when they are viewing this content and then associating the ads with it. You're right. I mean, at the face value, the way we look at it, I mean, let's face it, emotions have always fallen into that category where they're recognized as being important, both in terms of what emotions one conveys through programming and the the ads that appear within it. That's why we have a creative community, you know, that focuses on the minutiae and the art of storytelling, you know, the dark art of storytelling, if you like. And emotions has always fallen into that sort of soft and fluffy category, albeit recognized as important. So what we did with emotional DNA was seek to look at it in a systematic, quantifiable manner. And at scale, 
so that you can look at different shows and ultimately look at advertising as well. But firstly, look at shows and at networks consistently to understand what different content delivers in the eyes of the audience relative to other content. So you can actually say, well, how does This Is Us actually vary from The Walking Dead, from, you know, flip or flop, you know, on, on the instructions of The Voice? And where is their commonality and where are their differences? And to what extent are these things sharing commonalities and where, to what extent are they different? It's not always obvious by any means. You know, sometimes it is more obvious. But if you can do it systematically and if you can do it at scale, then you open up the opportunity to start to integrate that knowledge into your practices of how you operationalize your planning and your buying and your selling, obviously. That's very interesting. What are the factors when, or the criteria that you use to measure viewer engagement or tonality? I think you guys have done a body of work here to kind of really isolate those key criteria that you measure the tonality against or derive the tonality. Yeah, that's correct. And now, I mean, you know, emotional DNA has now been in the marketplace for over five years. And we spent between 12 and 18 months in development before it actually came to market as we were going through different iterations of work here at Maggot to understand things like, okay, what are the ways in which people talk about shows? What kinds of terminology gets applied? You know, how does it apply across genre? How does it apply between shows and networks and platforms and so on? And having gone through that process, we arrived at 36 different key attributes or descriptors that people use. And well, we're now conducting ongoing research, Rimfield every week, talk to around about a thousand people a week, and we're not recruiting from the same panel. And so we're talking to over 50,000 people a year about shows that are on air or have recently been on air. And when I say on air, we don't just mean broadcast and cable. We're also talking premium cable, obviously, but also the S-Pod originals. And so, we, you know, the Netflix originals, the Hulu, the Amazon originals, and so on. And we're increasingly adding in shows that digital only. So some of the Facebook originals, YouTube, and so forth, as well as some of the other platforms. That's a lot of shows. It is a lot. Right now, we've got over 3,500 shows in the data set, over 200 networks and platforms. And by platforms, I mean, we have got out to include the likes of things like Twitch and Vivo, like the request of clients as we've added things in. And we're obviously able to search that by genre, drama, comedy, unscripted, and dig into subgenres or the taxonomies within those genres as well, which themselves are defined by emotional criteria that defined by viewers. So we're not searching on them on the basis that they are, you know, travel shows or they're unscripted shows that are competition shows. We're searching on the basis of the emotional tonality. Now, when we first started developing this initiative, one of our earliest discoveries was that there are eight statistically differentiated dimensions of emotional tonality that are consistent across all types of programming and that apply to networks as well, probably unsurprisingly. And by plotting the show on each of the eight, you're already starting to see the characteristics unfurl of what is a unique emotional signature in the eyes of viewers of that show that that show represents. And then you're able to unpack it and go into the dimensions and see which specific attributes or descriptors are driving the performance on that dimension. 
it's important to say that there is no one great signature that a drama or a comedy should have. It really does depend on the type of show. After all, we watch all sorts of different types of shows that deliver differently. You know, it's not as if we're always after the same emotional payoff from every piece of programming we watch. So the landscape thrives on variety. There's also a dimension we call smarts, which is not about how intelligent the characters or the narrative is. It's how informed the viewers feel. So it's about being perceived as informative, how much people learn from it and so forth. A lot of unscripted shows do very well in that. I mean, think of the Discovery portfolio and the shows that well, Food Network and HGTV. They can be very entertaining, but you're also learning things as you go. Whereas most dramas actually are very low on that because they're about a gripping narrative which entertains, engages, enthralls, and so on. But they're not very often about learning something. Interestingly, the drama in the entire landscape, which does best against smarts, what do you want to have a guess? I think I already know this answer based on our prior conversation, but I love the show. <laughs> I gave it away. All right. Now, well, the answer then, as you probably know, is The Crown, which I believe is coming back on November 17th. It's uh, a much anticipation. And that, that makes perfect sense when you see the data because as you watch, you're learning a great deal, not only about the history of the time, but you're learning about the ins and outs and the details of the royal family and what was going on. You're learning about royal protocol, all these things that most people don't really know about. So yes, it's gripping and it's moving and it's enthralling and so forth. And there's elements of it which are sort of fairly sort of glamorous and passionate, but it is also very informative throughout. So it has a different profile. Yeah. And I actually, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying before is that it doesn't feel as if you know, you're wasting time because you're actually learning something as you watch it, which makes perfect sense in terms of its rating. So Mike, tell me, I mean, you guys have been in market for with this product for four or five years, as you mentioned. Can you share some case study specific applications of how, you know, without not revealing anything confidential, but just sharing some use cases of how people use this data? How's behavior changing from a client perspective when they see this lens of emotional DNA? Sure. Well, let's talk about let's talk about advertising because that's one of the areas in which it gets used. It is interesting. The product has evolved to be used across pretty much all parts of the content lifecycle, including ad sales and buying and planning. You know, as much as it is for pilot testing. But talking about advertising first, I mean, on the planning and buying side, it's very interesting. I mean, the first agency to buy into this was Horizon Media, which in some respects is perhaps unsurprising when you realise that. You know, Horizon is very much about understanding and leveraging human emotion as a driver for behavior. It's kind of one of the central tenets of their business, and they do it remarkably well. But they latched onto emotional DNA, and they've integrated it into many of their planning and buying procedures and processes. And there's one metric within emotional DNA, which we call intentionality. And it's really a proxy for engagement. We try not to describe it as engagement, but it, it points to engagement. And it's based on a battery of questions within the instrument that people answer in relation to each of the shows that they answer a decent number of questions on. And it goes to how they typically watch the show. And it's based upon statements which they either choose to agree with or not, which are indicative of higher levels of 
intent in viewing, but also higher degrees of attention that they give to that show. So for example, you would find statements in there which are like, I tend to watch the show as soon as it airs or becomes available. I typically give it my full attention or I binge watch this show. Or, you know, those would be three good examples of a higher level of intent and attention. On the other hand, there are statements in there like, well, I typically watch it in the background while doing chores, or I'll only watch it if somebody else wants to watch it, or if I just come across it while channel surfing. So indicative of lower levels of intent and attention. And then there's other questions in there or statements which are about whether or not somebody follows it online or contributes to discussions and social media, talks to people face-to-face and so on. And you can look at each of those statements in isolation to see which ones are driving the level of intentionality. But at the same time, we also have an algorithm which is, is upweights the more of the higher intent and attention-based statements to be able to create an intentionality index so that you can see how a show scores, how a network averages relative to others in the landscape. So it goes from a one to 200, and you can then look at it and say, what's the average for unscripted shows? What's the average for comedies and dramas or basic cable or SVOD originals and so on? And that gets very interesting because, you know, typically there's kind of a hierarchy where you see dramas are at the top, then comedies and then unscripted, but there are exceptions to that. Survivor, for example, even after all these seasons where you might be thinking, well, surely it's getting a bit long in the tooth by now, that still gets an intentionality index score of 199 out of 200, which places it incredibly close to the likes of you know, Game of Thrones or This Is Up and so on. It's right up there in the kind of the stratosphere, even though it's from an unscripted category, which is typically lower performing on average, and it has been around for a long time. So I know that some advertisers are driven by engagement, and so the intentionality score become something which is indicative of that. And therefore, I mean, I do know that there are some advertisers who say, well, we don't want to be aired in shows that don't pass a certain threshold on that intentionality index. Now, to look at that alone is something of a blunt instrument. You need to take into account the emotional environment as well. And that's something Horizon is very good at, because if you understand what the campaign is seeking to achieve, and that's generally in the campaign brief, or what the brand wants to stand for, whether it's reorienting its position or reinforcing a position, you can actually say, fine, we can identify what those emotional values are. And now we can find programming, which not only delivers the audience to the earlier point, it delivers the audience in the context of a show, which that audience perceives as delivering the emotional characteristics that the advertiser is seeking to leverage. So that their advertising, which presumably the creative is successfully communicating those values, is now being seen in an environment which is consistent with those values. And we've done a lot of research which shows that that improves the performance of those ads against different metrics of ad receptivity. And there's also a large body of other research done using all sorts of different methods, which reinforces that point. The emotional context, if it's consistent with the ads, helps the ad performance overall. And that's one of the things that Horizon looks at. Yeah, that makes sense, right? So you're in a certain state of mind and then to receive a commercial or an advertisement that keeps you in that state or, is, you know, you can actually digest the message. It makes sense that when you say it, it sounds simple, but it's surprising that 
it's just being recently looked at? Yeah, well, I think it's kind of been looked at quite a lot, but it's being able to operationalize it. Better said, operationalize is better, right? Yeah, that's the challenge because we've got systems in place which don't allow for that right now. There are ways in which we we buy and ways in which we don't buy. And that's often one of the biggest obstacles to innovation and change. And the, the progress, the undoubted progress that's been made in audience targeting is really building on what we've done before because we've always sought to deliver audiences that advertisers want to reach in putting together their campaign schedule. I mean, guarantees are all based on audience delivery, always have been. Now we've got more granular. So we're really building on a foundation which was already in place. And one body of work we've done has been around this issue of emotional alignment, which is really what I was describing just now, where we can define the emotional tonality, in this case of specific creative executions for advertisers. And we contest the emotional DNA of the ads and say through a proximity analysis, which shows are most directly similar or which networks deliver an emotional tonality, which is most directly similar to the ad because we've done the work which shows that the more similar the emotional tonality of the ad to the programs within which it appears, the better the results in terms of purchase intent brand affinity, perceived relevance, willingness to recommend, and so on. All of those metrics that we associate with campaign effectiveness and ad receptivity. Well, you know what I love about this is is that, you know, you continue to hear about digital, you know, online advertising surpassing and kind of gaining, continuing to gain market share in terms of advertising dollars. And I know you have strong opinions about the platform of TV and online, it does make this platform even more rich, right? Because it differentiates itself by really connecting the human element to the content and then to the advertising, which I think will provide tremendous value in terms of its relevance going forward. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I mean, I get really annoyed with all these discussions about TV being dead and it's not about TV anymore. It's about mobile or it's about online. I think that totally misses the point. It's, and look, there's no such thing as a television company anymore. Name me one company that only operates in what traditionally was referred to as television. They're not. They're in online. They're in mobile. They're in everything. Half of them are getting into streaming now. And if they're not getting into streaming, they're making money out of streaming by licensing their content. Everybody is cross-platform, multi-platform, call it what you will. And they have been for a long time. The discussion about whether TV is dead is largely driven by people who are only focused in one area. That's where they make the bulk of their money, whether they're they're mobile champions, whether they're online champions. And it is device-centric. You know, it's display-centric. From a consumer point of view, it's about content and it's about consuming quality narratives, quality stories, and quality information that moves me and the world I can consume in a way which works for me. That makes perfect sense. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. It's been incredibly informative and quite frankly, a very unique perspective in terms of tying in emotions as you think about content, advertisement, media purchasing. And I definitely think one of my true measures of whether I think a podcast is kind of makes the cut is if I've learned something and I certainly have learned a lot today. So thank you. You're very kind. It's been a great pleasure. As those that know me will no doubt testify, I can talk for hours 
on this sort of thing. But this has been enormously enjoyable. I'm really grateful for having had the opportunity. Thank you, Seema. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Data Guru's podcast. This episode has ended, but your exploration doesn't have to. Head over to www.dataguruspodcast.com and access all the resources and links mentioned in today's show. You'll also find bonus content available to our podcast listeners exclusively. That's www.dataguruspodcast.com. Until next time, be bold, be brave, and be fearless.